Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Several years ago, I wrote an editorial discussing the ways that Buddhist communities elevate their teachers and themselves above other sanghas, a tendency I called Dharma exceptionalism. But recently, the scholar Evan Thompson has gone even further, decrying a Buddhist exceptionalism, the view among many modern practitioners that Buddhism holds a unique position above all other religions. Evan is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, as well as a longtime fellow at the Mind and Life Institute, which examines the intersection of science and contemplative wisdom, and lists the Dalai Lama as its honorary chair. However, in his new book, provocatively titled, Why I'm Not a Buddhist, Evan argues that Buddhism and science are not uniquely compatible, despite what many have claimed. In this episode, I sit down with Evan to discuss his thoughtful critique of Buddhist modernism, as well as his own spiritual and philosophical journey, and why he is, in fact, not a Buddhist. Evan Thompson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I'd like to start with the title of your book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist. And I ask that because, one, the book asks that, and two, you're deeply knowledgeable about Buddhism. You've been exposed to Buddhism from a very early age. So why don't you tell our listeners why you are not a Buddhist? Well, the main reason is that when I got deeper and deeper into Buddhism over the course of my life, and, you know, we can talk more about that later if you want, I became increasingly dissatisfied philosophically, you could say, with a lot of the thinking and rhetoric of what historians call Buddhist modernism, which is really the form of Buddhism that we know in the modern world, especially in, in North America and Europe. And the main problem I have is what I call in the book Buddhist exceptionalism. And this is the idea that we hear often that Buddhism isn't really a religion. It's a philosophy or a mind science or a therapy or a way of life. Or that if it is a religion, it's different from in the sense of being superior to other religions. And I find this objectionable for a number of reasons. One, because I think it actually uh, misrepresents Buddhism. I think Buddhism is fundamentally a religion, and in order to understand it properly, it has to be thought of in that way. But also, I think that way of thinking rests on what I would describe as kind of confused presuppositions about what science is and what religion is and what the relationship between them should be, the idea that we can prove that one religion is more inherently scientific or that science should be used to justify and legitimize religion as we often see in the discourse, say, around the science of Buddhist meditation practices. So for these reasons, um, I mean, to summarize all that, I could, I could say that I'm a philosopher and I find Buddhist modernism philosophically unsound. And the only way really to be, for me at any rate, a Buddhist in the modern world would to be a Buddhist modernist. That is, I'm not someone who's attracted to join a traditional monastic form of Buddhism. So the form of Buddhism that is in the culture and that, it is, av and that is available is Buddhist modernism, but Buddhist modernism has all these philosophical problems. So that, that in a nutshell is what the, the title of the book signifies, is a kind of philosophical critique of, of Buddhist modernism. 
Okay, just to define terms for a moment, aside from Buddhist exceptionalism, which you which you believe characterizes uh, Buddhist modernism, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by Buddhist modernism? Buddhist modernism is the form of Buddhism that arose in the 19th century, and it arose originally in European countries under European colonial rule. So, for example, uh, Burma or, or Myanmar. And what we saw in those situations was a discourse on the part of the colonizers of the superiority of European civilization, the superiority of the Christian religion, the superiority of science, and Asian reformers, monastic Buddhist reformers who wanted to make Buddhism more widely accessible to the lay community, turned the argument around on their Christian colonizers and said, well, Buddhism is actually the scientific religion because we don't believe in God. We believe in a law of cause and effect, namely the law of karma. And our religion is more scientific. And this went hand in hand with innovating certain traditional religious meditation practices and rituals and making them more widely accessible to the lay community. So this form of Buddhism was then exported to the West. So all of the the sort of major figures we see in the 19th century and in the 20th century who brought Buddhism to the West, figures like um, Anagarika Dharmapala from Burma or, um, or D.T. Suzuki in a different context from Japan, they made this argument. They said, well, Buddhism is the essence of religion. It's the true religion. And moreover, it's scientific. And this is the form of Buddhism that Westerners were were exposed to and the the forms of meditation practice that were created by these innovative Buddhists were the ones that uh, that that we've come to know today, such as such as the the Theravada Vipassana Insight meditation, and then that form of Buddhism was actually exported back into Asia. So it became a kind of transnational form of Buddhism in the modern world that cuts across cuts across geographical and um, and cultural boundaries. So it's a, you know, historians sometimes use the term pizza effect to describe this type of uh, phenomenon. So the pizza effect is, you know, you have this creation in, say, Naples, which is, you know, a bit of dough baked with, you know, light tomato sauce, a bit of a sprinkling of cheese. That gets brought by Italian immigrants to the New World. Then they change it in all sorts of ways. They add fancy toppings. They make the crust thicker. And then that gets exported back into Italy. So if you go to Italy today, you have pizza that's actually a kind of um, cross-geographical creation. And we think of that as what pizza is. So similarly, from in the case of Buddhism, You have Buddhism emerge in the colonial context in Asia, get exported to the West, then get imported back into Asia, and and then that becomes the discourse of modern Buddhism. The the historian David McMahon has called Buddhist modernism the lingua franca of Buddhist discourse today. And what is fundamentally wrong with that for you? Well, what's wrong with that for me is, uh, well, first of all, the, the idea of Buddhist exceptionalism, that Buddhism isn't a religion, it's a a therapy or a a mind science, a kind of inner science of the mind, so the adoption of a scientific discourse to describe what are, to my mind, essentially ritualistic and religious practices, namely um, Buddhist meditation. They claim that, well, Buddhism is superior to other religions or it's the true essence of all religions. We see this claim, for example, in D.T. Suzuki. So I think all of these don't bear critical, scholarly, philosophical uh, scrutiny. Um, I think Buddhist meditation is is not a science. It's a it's a transformative practice. It has many features of um, religious ritual, and to me, it's as confused as saying that art is scientific or that um, science can be used to legitimize art. 
Um, the, these right. are different forms of human experience that all can coexist, but it's not the job of science to legitimize one. Right. It's this mistaken notion that science is the arbiter of value in all areas. Exactly. So um, let's just get back to this idea of exceptionalism for a moment before we move on to science. Don't all religions see themselves as exceptional? And is Buddhism exceptionalism any different in this regard? Yes, no, that, that's a very good point. So, of course, if we look at any religion, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, any of the so-called world religions, we find an exceptionalist discourse. But we're very good at spotting that when it comes out of the mouths of Christians or especially Muslims given you know, present political circumstances, Hindus, uh, we, we recognize that now, but we don't seem to recognize it as clearly when it comes out of the mouths of Buddhists. And so there's a way in which um, there's, 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 not a, there's not an equal playing field or, or fair treatment. If you're, if you're within a religious tradition, um, then of course you're going to make special claims for, for your tradition. The thing that Buddhists often do, especially modern North American Buddhists, is that they don't recognize that they're, that they're doing that when they, when they do it, or they think that, well, it isn't really a religion anyway, so um, right. that sort of fuels the, the, uh, the exceptionalist claims. Well, just looking at pre-modern Buddhism for a moment, isn't built into it also a sense of exceptionalism, that Buddha is a world teacher and so forth? Doesn't it pre-exist Buddhist modernism, that sense of exceptionalism? Yes, so that's that's exactly what I mean. That if we look at any religious tradition, of course, we have exceptional claims made for Jesus; he's the he's the Messiah. Right. We have exceptional claims made for Buddha; he's the awakened one. And, and in the very earliest Buddhist suttas, we already see these descriptions of the Buddha as this exceptional human being who's who's different from all others. So it's not so much that kind of exceptionalism that I'm arguing against. I mean, it's. The discussion there would have to be a little different. It's the modernist version of exceptionalism that makes the claim for the exceptional status of Buddhism by saying that it's a scientific religion and where science is used in especially the sense of modern empirical science. Yeah, so let's move on to science then. You figured prominently in the Mind and Life Project, and I wonder what you find fruitful and what you find flawed in the Buddhism and science dialogue. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what I find fruitful and what always attracted me to that conversation from its very early days was the encounter between two different kinds of thought systems with different philosophical assumptions and different philosophical perspectives, both of which are concerned with, you could say, human transformation, the transformation of the world and the transformation of the mind. And what was interesting to me was not the idea that we would use one to justify another or that we would try to merge both of them into something else, but precisely that we could have an interesting dialogue and debate in which differences would be respected and the emergence of differences would be informative and, and enlightening in and of themselves. What didn't attract me and what I found increasingly problematic as the conversation or let's say parts of the conversation evolved in certain directions was the idea that what we should really be pursuing is proving the benefits of Buddhist meditation using science, using let's say psychology, the tools of psychology and neuroscience and that the job was to show that Buddhist meditation was legitimate because it could be shown to be scientifically valid. 
And that immediately flattens the discourse because then we bring the perspective of science as the arbiter of what's true and what's important and valuable onto Buddhism in a way where the Buddhist side of the discussion has to conform itself to the scientific assumptions. And I found this increasingly to be the case in a way in all parties to the discussion. So not just on the part of certain scientists, but also on the part of certain Buddhists, that they would feel that that was the right way for the discussion to go. And that, to my mind, reinforced the problematic aspects of, of Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism that we, were, that we were talking about earlier. So imagine, for example, if there was a dialogue between, and indeed there have been dialogues between Christian thinkers and Christian contemplatives and scientists, and the idea was that, well, science is going to prove the legitimacy of Christianity by proving the effects of, say, Christian prayer or by showing that Christian philosophical thinking from the Middle Ages, say in the form of Thomas Aquinas, that this was the way that scientific theories should now be cast. Well, some people, of course, would go along with that, probably on both sides, scientists and Christians, and, and indeed there has been some of that in, in the past. But I think many of us would, would immediately be skeptical. We would think that there's not, that's not really the right way for the discussion to go. Well, there's a lot more slack given to Buddhism or leeway given to Buddhism when the discussion takes exactly that form. And that's something that I think uh, – that, that, that isn't right. And I became increasingly frustrated with that. Right. I had a question for you later on, but I think I'm going to ask it now. You know, Bernard Forup at Columbia wrote a piece for us where he says that when it comes to the Buddhism and neuroscience dialogue, the dominant model has been one of convergence. And he said we'd learn a lot, perhaps even a lot more, if we focused on the differences between the two and how they challenge each other. Is this what you're saying in part? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I believe I read that article and I fundamentally agree with that statement. Yeah, the way he sees it, of the two interlocutors, uh, science has the upper hand and that with the emerging dominance of neuroscience, the trend is only accelerated. Do you agree with that? Uh, I think that culturally that is the case. I think science has the authority, power, and prestige in our culture. And even unconsciously then, it shapes the terms of the dialogue. And that really requires that in the dialogue, we need to have a certain kind of vigilance to realize when that's happening and to mark out when it occurs and to step back and to say, well, let's uh, call into question certain assumptions. So um, one assumption, which is already questionable in scientific terms, I should say, is the idea that the right way to look at cognition or the mind is simply in terms of what happens to be going on in the brain as measurable by one or another technology that we have today. One can be skeptical of that without necessarily meaning to imply anything dualistic about the mind being immaterial. That's a whole other discussion. But simply by saying that, well, no, actually what's really important is culture and history and tradition. And those things are not revealed by brain scans. And culture and history and tradition are fundamentally what's at stake when we have a dialogue between, for example, Tibetan Buddhist scholars and practitioners and Western scientists. That makes me think of, I think it must have been in 2003, 2004, I went to Princeton to interview a group from Mind and Life, several of your colleagues or former colleagues, and science and Buddhism wasn't much in the mainstream press yet. Uh, I remember asking them, did a single one of you have any doubts about the benefits of meditation before you began studying it? 
And I asked that because of the obvious issue of confirmation bias. And they all very honestly said, we've all had positive experiences with meditation, and then they were studying it. So is there that risk of confirmation bias there? Oh, definitely. And this is actually something that has come up at the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, which is a summer institute for researchers in contemplative practices, scientists who study meditation, also, you know, philosophers, historians, Buddhist practitioners. So very early on in the days when this institute was founded in 2004, we had discussions about, well, how is it going to be possible to have a rigorous scientific investigation if people are already antecedently committed to the benefits of certain kinds of meditation practices? And the danger is indeed a kind of confirmation bias. And we've seen that happen in some of the studies where there's maybe a bias towards um, publishing null results or negative results. Now, to be fair, many researchers are aware of this and, and do their very best to try to handle this problem. And, and some researchers are especially interested in and sensitive to, uh, let's say, deleterious or harmful things that can happen to certain people in certain contexts when they engage in certain kinds of meditation practices. So the, the field has gotten more sophisticated in thinking about that. But nevertheless, the, the starting assumption was very much meditation is, is a good thing. It's beneficial. Indeed, you could say spiritually transformative. And now we're going to validate this using science. And I mean, we've seen this before. So in, in the 1970s, exactly the same thing was happening with transcendental meditation, with TM. And there was kind of an arc of research, and, and that peaked for a number of different reasons. The research that's being undertaken today is much better quality research in, in many ways than what was done in earlier years. But there's still a very similar uh, mindset around it with the um, idea that, well, this is, this is just inherently a good thing, and, and science is going to show us that it is. One thing that Don Lopez said, uh, Don Lopez at the University of Michigan, he may have written this in Tricycle. It could have been an excerpt. Um, it's very funny. He said, if Buddhism was consistent with science in the 19th century, as many people argued, it certainly isn't consistent with it now. Science is a bit of a moving target, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I would say religion is moving and transforming as well. Right. Um, so it's not as if Buddhism today is the same as Buddhism in the 19th century. And of course, it's not the case that science today is the same as science in the 19th century. But his point, I think, speaks exactly to the idea that the form that the conversation should take is one of exploring differences at a deep level rather than trying to use the science of the day to legitimize or to prop up the, the religion of the day. That's a very kind of superficial level of discussion. So we need then to go deeper into really what are the differences in a religious or spiritual worldview in which value, normativity, ethics are central and a worldview in which we're focused, you know, on acquiring information and technical knowledge, and we often lose sight of more fundamental underlying ethical questions. You know, let's take an example of the, the Buddhism and science dialogue. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for people to think that the Buddhist notion of, of non-self is consistent with contemporary science. Can you comment on that? Yes. So I devote a chapter uh, of my book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist, to this very topic, the topic of the self. And this is a place where I think we often see a distorted or, or unbalanced discussion. So for example, we see statements like, well, neuroscience has proved the Buddhist truth of no self, because if we look in the brain, we don't find a self. And the problem with that 
Well, there's several problems, but one problem is that when Buddhists use the term no self, the self that they're talking about is a particular kind of thing, an, an inner essence that would be a subject of experience and a, and a controlling agent of action and that we have an emotional attachment to or investment in. And then the idea is that, oh, well, lo and behold, there's no such thing in the brain as a subject of experience or an agent of action. The problem there is that the brain is the wrong place to look for those things anyway. The, the self in the sense of a subject of experience and an agent of action is the whole embodied being embedded in its environment. And we know from the history of, of psychology and neuroscience and cognitive science that that kind of self is a construction. It's a biological and social construction. So the idea that there is no self from a scientific point of view is a, is a, is a bit of an odd statement because from a scientific point of view, there is a self, but it's an ongoing changing construction. Whereas the Buddhist view is really targeting a particular notion of self, which isn't really how we talk about self in science or, or philosophy today. So there's a way in which the discussion needs refinement on both sides. And simply to say, well, there is no self in the brain is, is really to, f to, flatten, to flatten that discussion. But it's exactly an example of, of the kind of Buddhist exceptionalism that we see where it says, well, Buddhism says there is no self and science shows there is no self. So Buddhism is more scientific and is superior to, say, Christians or Muslims or Hindus who talk in terms of self. That, I think, is, is, uh, is, is very superficial for the reasons you know, that, I was, that I was just giving. You know, in that chapter that you just mentioned on self, uh, you talk about understanding the Buddhist notion of no self in the context in which it evolved over centuries. And and that is in a religiously diverse culture, the religiously diverse culture of pre-modern South Asia. When we forget about those other traditions against which this notion evolved, are we losing something vital? Well, I certainly think as a philosopher and as someone interested in the history of, of religion and philosophy, we are losing something vital. In the South Asian context, we have this complicated evolving discourse so that when the Buddha in the suttas is presented as saying not to identify with anything as self, then we have other traditions affected by this. And so we have changes in the meaning of self so that when we see self and no self used, say, 500 years later, the discussion has really gotten quite enriched and, and sophisticated. So the terms are changing. The traditions are learning from each other. There's, you know, syncretic, synthetic movements. So that's part of the history of, of human thought and experience that I think is very rich. And any full investigation of self should be, should be informed by that. Um, and, and that's precisely where I think in a way the discussion between Buddhism and science needs to be a discussion between Buddhist philosophy and science where – the Buddhist philosophical tradition is a rich, evolving tradition with different and nuanced conceptions of self. But I would even say a larger discussion that's a discussion with other, say, South Asian traditions of philosophical and religious thinking because Buddhism, Buddhism didn't exist in a vacuum. It existed in this rich cosmopolitan culture in which Sanskrit was the language of learning and, and philosophy and many traditions were interacting with each other. And it's that cosmopolitan richness, I think, that really bears, you could say, comparison or conversation with science and, and philosophy today, not just one particular tradition abstracted from that. Okay, there's a lot here. And I'm wondering, 
I asked you about how you understood self, and you gave a very articulate response. But just to help our listeners out a little bit, you talk about the self in terms of what you call the four E's. Uh, can you help us out there with that? Yes. So this is in a, a cognitive science context. So in the in the context of the of the scientific study of cognition, where the four E's are embodiment, emergence, embeddedness, and inaction. And so the idea of embodiment is that mind, including our sense of self, isn't simply a matter of what goes on in the brain. It has to do with our whole embodied being interactively uh, engaged with the world. The idea of emergence is that in that interaction, we have patterns and regularities that emerge that structure cognition and structure our experience. Um, The idea of embeddedness is that this is all... Uh, tightly coupled or embedded in the environment, so the the natural as well as the social and cultural historical environment is crucial for understanding the mind. And then the idea of inaction is in a way um, a term that summarizes all that, where mind or cognition is the enacting or or bringing forth of meaning, including bringing forth our sense of of the world as as a locus of of life and experience and and value and un, an understanding. So an action is really uh, it's kind of a summary term for all of those ideas viewed from the perspective of the idea of cognition as a kind of sense making. And this is a term actually, an action that was coined by Francisco Varela, who was a, a neuroscientist and a Tibetan Buddhist who was the founding scientist of the Mind and Life Institute. And I, I worked closely with him for many years. And he coined this term. This was, this was his, his view of, of cognition that, that we developed in our book, The Embodied Mind, some years ago. And I, I mentioned Varela also because as the founding scientist of the Mind and Life Institute, he had a very sophisticated understanding of the dialogue between Buddhism and science, that, that he was as interested in the differences and the you might even say the incommensurabilities as he was in any sense of commonality or common ground. All right. So given your what you've just given us as a definition or an understanding of cognition, which includes the self or our sense of self, what implications does that have for what you and others call neuro-Buddhism or the study of meditation's effect on the brain, say? The term neuro-Buddhism refers to this idea that in understanding meditation, Buddhist meditation, or the self, or even really mind more generally, what's fundamentally uh, important and the sort of ultimate determinant of truth is what's going on inside the head in the brain as measured uh, using, you know, for example, brain imaging technologies. And, and we see this, for example, in the study of mindfulness practices. Now, my criticism of that is that something like um, mindfulness or indeed more generally attention is a cognitive process that isn't inside the brain. You need, of course, a brain for mindfulness or attention, but it isn't inside the brain. It's rather an action or performance of the whole individual or being in a social context and in the wider world. So an analogy that I like to use is that if you're studying flight, of a, the flight of a bird, say, well, birds need wings to fly, but flight isn't inside the wings. Flight is something that has to do with the action of the bird in relationship to its environment. So similarly, attention or concentration or mindfulness, 
These are processes that have to do with how we as individuals relate to the world, including ourselves. And of course, you need a brain with certain kinds of cognitive systems for these processes to happen, but they're not inside the brain, just as flight is not inside the wings of the bird. So this is precisely to take an inactive or embodied perspective on cognition, in, including the kind of cognitive processes that happen during meditation, rather than to take a in-the-head, brain-bound, neurocentric perspective. And, and that perspective, the brain-bound one, has been very dominant, let's say, in the rhetoric around the scientific study of mindfulness? Well, when people do fMRI studies, for instance, on the brain, when people are in states of meditation, uh, do you think that's fruitful? Do you think that yields anything of great value? Or do you feel mixed about that? I think it, it very much depends on the question that's being asked. So, for example, an analogy that I, that I use, I use this one in my book, is um, suppose that we did a neuroimaging experiment on Yo-Yo Ma's brain. And, and for all I know, maybe this has been done, but I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, while he's playing box cello suite number one. Well, Yo-Yo Ma is an expert virtuoso performer. It's natural to expect that this is going to be reflected in aspects of the brain involving attention and concentration and musical cognition. But the idea that looking at the brain is going to give us an understanding of the cello or music or Bach. This, this is just a kind of conceptual confusion. Bach, Bach's music belongs to a particular you know, historical tradition, um, that, as does the cello. Uh, performance is always in a social context. So music isn't inside the head. Similarly, if you were to look at the brain of a virtuoso meditator – well, I would imagine that uh, there would be – and indeed we know there, that there are things in the brain that are correlated with long-term meditation practice. But I don't find that in and of itself to be terribly informative about what meditation is and what its purpose and meaning is, just as in the case of, say, Yo-Yo Ma and playing Bach. So if our question is, well, I want to understand may, some of the effects of meditation practice on the brain – that's, that's a perfectly fine question. That would be a question we would formulate in the domain of, say, skill and learning, uh, and, that, and that's fine. But the idea that that would somehow give us an understanding of what meditation is and what its meaning and purpose and value is, I think uh, that's not the right way to look at it. Right. It wouldn't necessarily bear any relation to Buddhism's soteriological goals, say, nirvana or enlightenment that's right. and so forth. That's right. Exactly. You're listening to Tricycle's editor and publisher, James Shaheen, in conversation with Evan Thompson, author of Why I'm Not a Buddhist. Have you wondered what the purpose of mindfulness really is? In Tricycle's online classroom, you can now join beloved meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg for her six-part course, The Whole Path, Kindness, Meditation, and Wisdom. In this course, Sharon will explore the nuances of key Buddhist practices, such as the development of mindfulness and concentration. These practices, Sharon explains, can allow the mind and heart to open to the Buddha's transformative wisdom. The whole path starts March 23rd, and Tricycle Podcast listeners can receive a special $25 discount when they enroll with the code TRIPOD25. 
Enroll now at learn.tricycle.org. Now, let's return to James Shaheen and conversation with Evan Thompson, author of Why I'm Not a Buddhist. What are your feelings about the role of faith in Buddhism, and and why do Buddhist modernists uh, seem to be so averse to that term? If that's true, I, I think it's true. Yes. I think Buddhism is fundamentally a matter of faith. So here we connect back again to Buddhist exceptionalism, where we often see statements like, well, Buddhism isn't a faith-based religion. Um, now, first of all, we need to be precise in terms of what we mean by faith. There's a sort of modern sense of the word faith where it means believing something without sufficient empirical evidence. That's not, I think, the proper understanding of faith. I think the proper understanding of faith is confidence or trust in something that is grounded in, let's say, a community and a history and a narrative of meaning. And that is trust or confidence in, let's say, something transcendent or that that belongs to transcendence. So in the case of Buddhism, Buddhism is fundamentally based on faith because the idea of nirvana awakening, cessation, enlightenment, however we choose to render it, that's not something that's based on empirical evidence in the sense of it can be shown through a scientific experiment or or evidence can be gathered for it in the form of a scientific experiment. It's an idea that has to do with meaning and, and transcendence beyond what we ordinarily take to be reality and the way things are. And historically, it's embodied in the figure of of the Buddha. And trust or confidence in the Buddha is a matter of faith fundamentally. So I see that as like faith in Jesus or, or like faith in God. They're not the same, but they're analogous in terms of the roles that they play in the tradition. Now, now Buddhist modernists think, oh, no— um, we don't need faith because Buddhism is scientifically based and we can show the validity of a concept like nirvana or awakening through science. And that, I think, is not actually possible at all. I think that awakening nirvana is not a concept that has one singular precise meaning, which would be required for a scientific validation. It's a concept that has a number of different meanings already in the early texts as they ramify throughout the history of Buddhism in in Asia. And they all have to do with how thinkers and communities embody an understanding of the teachings of the Buddha. And there's no sort of one singular meaning that you can extract from them that would be uh, something that you could then go scientifically test. It's, it's again, it's a, it's a kind of confusion of apples and oranges. You point this out again and again. Trying to use science to validate religion is a bit foolish probably, but likewise, I know that, that you critique the positions of some of your close friends and colleagues, <laughs> and Bob Thurman was uh, once your professor early on, and I know uh, you respect him. But he goes in the other direction. He says, Buddhism is what science should be doing. Uh, can right, you respond right. to that? So let me say, first of all, <laughs> that, um, that, that, that Bob is one of my uh, revered teachers. I, I first learned about Buddhism academically, uh, studying with him many, many years ago when he was at Amherst College. And um, I feel a great, a great debt to him and, and um, think of those years with great fondness and with him with great fondness. That said, um, I I fundamentally disagree with that statement. 
imagine, you know, if someone said Christianity is what science should be doing or Islam is what science should be doing or Hinduism is what science should be doing. I think people do say that, some people. People do. <laughs> that, is, that is true. People do. But I think they're all uh, objectionable. Now, if I remember from reading that, I did read that piece, um, part of what he means is that, you know, scientists should be concerned with broader ethical matters of bettering the world and human transformation. Now, that's true, but I would say that every scientist I know is concerned with that. He criticizes scientists for being materialistic, uh, but all of the scientists that I know, and, I, and I've worked very closely with scientists over many years, all of them are fundamentally motivated and concerned by, by ethical matters. So, of course, that can get lost sight of uh, by science or scientists, um, but that can get lost sight of by Buddhists too. So the idea that, that it's Buddhism's job or that Buddhism provides us a perspective for science, I think, uh, I think it's insensitive to actually what scientists think and do. And I think that the idea that Buddhism in the sense of a specific religious tradition should be providing an agenda for science, uh, I think, is not the job of Buddhism. You advocate for cosmopolitanism. Uh, can you say what you mean by that word? Cosmopolitanism is a term that philosophers use to describe the idea that human beings make up one community and that that community has to value or embrace different worldviews, different ways of life, different ethical systems, that there needs to be toleration for multiple different viewpoints, and that value comes from dialogue and debate in which we get to learn about each other and we get to learn about our different traditions and, and worldviews. So the idea in the Western narrative goes back to Greek or Hellenistic philosophers who said, when asked who you are or where you come from, don't say, you know, I'm a citizen of Athens, but I'm a citizen of the world. And what they meant by that was an allegiance to a larger sense of, of human belonging together. And we, we see this also in, uh, in South Asia with what the historian Sheldon Pollock calls the Sanskrit cosmopolis. This is the idea that Sanskrit is the language that spans and interconnects different regions with their different traditions, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, Jain. We see it in China with the recognition of the three schools or the three teachings of Confucianism and Buddhism and Taoism. And so it's a perspective that encourages dialogue and debate while respecting differences. And the end of my book is a, it's a kind of plea for cosmopolitanism and having the cosmopolitan perspective be the one in which we look at the dialogue and the engagement of Buddhism and science rather than the Buddhist modernist perspective. If we look at Buddhist history and the way Buddhism spread, um, there may be precedents there for what you're referring to as cosmopolitanism. Uh, you mentioned Nagarjuna at some point. I mean, we can consider the spread of Buddhism and the, the people it reached and, and its sort of cosmopolitan genesis. I wonder if in Buddhism you find anywhere a way forward for us. I think that Buddhism is a very, very rich intellectual and religious tradition. And so I describe myself in the book as, a, as wanting to be a good friend to Buddhism. 
And so my hope is that by pointing out some of these problems with Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism, that Buddhists can find a way forward beyond those limitations. And I think, now this may be because I'm a philosopher, but I think that especially in the historical richness of Buddhist philosophy in India and China and Japan, that there are resources to move forward, at least on an, on an intellectual level. And so traditions like the Madhyamaka critical tradition, which dates back to the philosopher Nagarjuna, this is a tradition that criticizes assuming that things exist in themselves independently of other things in the way that we, say, mentally represent them or frame them in terms of our concepts. So if we take an idea like that and we apply it to Buddhist modernism itself but also to science, we have a philosophical perspective that can, I think, loosen up our thinking and so it would be those kinds of aspects of the Buddhist tradition that I would look to intellectually at any rate for, for forward movement. So, you know, I understand that when you advance an argument, you've got to define terms. Uh, you know, the book's 189 pages long. It packs a great deal in that short number of pages. But I wonder if to some extent when looking at Buddhist modernism, everything is not being lumped into one category. In other words... I wonder if we overlook the diversity of Buddhism in Europe and North America. And just as there are Buddhist modernists within the tradition, there are also those who critique it who aren't necessarily fitting the definition of traditional Buddhist. So I'm wondering how you think of somebody within the tradition expressing the cosmopolitan ethos that you advocate. Yeah, that's a very, uh, that's a very good point. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to lump everyone together. Um, that would not be good. I don't like being lumped. Um, right. Um, so, I mean, in order to respond precisely to your question, we, we would have to consider, let's say, individual cases. Mm -hmm. um, but let's take one case um, because it's, it's an interesting case. And this, and this person is, is also a friend of mine and someone whose work I, I respect tremendously. And that's Stephen Batchelor. So Stephen is, let's say he's a modern Buddhist thinker, and he's, he's concerned to articulate a philosophically sophisticated and rich and contemplatively rich understanding of the Dharma, as he calls it. And he's done this, you know, over, over many books that are um, really very, very rich. And so he's an example of someone who's trying to, who's trying to move Buddhism forward and who in some ways does not fit the Buddhist modernist description that I've given. But at the same time, in other ways, he does fit it. So he, he makes a typical Buddhist modernist move, for example, which is to say that his vision of the Dhamma is actually the original Buddha's teaching and that the later tradition lost sight of it, um, the later tradition is corrupted or is too intellectually caught up in philosophical entanglements. And this is a very Buddhist modernist move. It's a modernist move in general to think that we can get back behind tradition and uncover the original founding thinker's message. Now, in point of historical fact, there's no way we can do that with the Buddha. And I find that his attempt to reconstruct the suttas in a way that extracts a kind of modern Buddha from them 
I think that that doesn't work if it's supposed to be a matter of historical scholarship. The suttas are already um, at great remove from the Buddha. They contain many different ideas, many of which are inconsistent and contradictory. So that aspect, I think, of his thought doesn't work. And indeed, I think it's not the same as by any means, but it's analogous to a kind of fundamentalism because the fundamentalist makes the same claim about being able to get back to the original message outside of received tradition. So this is where I part company with Stephen Batchelor. I think that fundamentally doesn't work. If he were to say, here's a vision I'm trying to articulate here and now to move us forward, and he didn't make claims about its being the original historical Buddha's message, then I would say that's fascinating. I have a great deal of sympathy for much of it, and let's now evaluate it on its own terms. But it's the claim for historical veracity which makes him, say, fall into the category of, of Buddhist modernism, at least in that element of his thinking. I mention him, you know, because I'm sure many people are familiar with his work, right. and it's one particular case. Uh, you know, maybe there are some other cases we could, we could discuss, but, but that's the one that immediately came to mind when you made that question. Yeah, well, of course, science doesn't dominate all discourse among Buddhists. I mean, they're talking about political theory, social theory, literature, and so forth. So the, mm -hmm. the, the interplane overlap of those fields are often discussed, for instance, just in the magazine, but I know that even larger discussions exist elsewhere. But the reason I brought this up in part is because you feel that you have two choices with regard to whether you're a Buddhist, either traditional monastically based Buddhism or Buddhist modernism. And I think somebody like Stephen may point to the possibility of something else. I think others, um, uh, Rita Gross, uh, the late Rita Gross, she, she mm -hmm. certainly advanced gender equality within, of course, Buddhism and Buddhist sanghas. But she was somebody who thought critically and at the same time was a scholar practitioner like many others. So I think the conversation of which you're really a part is inspiring and gives me some hope of a way forward. Yes. Yeah, so no, I think, that's a, I think that's a valid point, definitely. And I was wondering what your sense of the importance or non-importance of being grounded in a tradition, uh, because I think engagement with a particular tradition gives shape to one's personal questioning and links to a long conversation much longer than, say, my own horizons. How do you view that? I think we're, we're all embedded in traditions, always. Um, the idea that we could step out of tradition is, I think, a modern notion. I think it's an illusion. There is a modern tradition as well, of course, too. Right. I think having a historical consciousness of the richness of tradition is is fundamentally important for a sense of identity and for an understanding also that tradition never speaks with one voice. There are always multiple voices and therefore we shouldn't try to flatten things down to, to one particular voice. Right. So would you see yourself as embedded within the philosophical tradition? Is that fair to say? Yes. I think of myself as embedded in... A number of different kinds of traditions, I suppose. So one tradition that I'm embedded in is, you know, I was raised as a kid in the 1970s in an alternative spiritual educational community called the Lindisfarne Association, founded by my parents, um, very much a product of, you know, the sensibility of the 1960s and 1970s. And that exposed me to multiple religious traditions and spiritual teachers from a very young age and was where I first encountered Buddhism and Buddhist teachers. So that, let's say, 20th century, pluralistic, but very modernistic as well, um, context ha has, has shaped 
uh, how I how I look at a lot of things. And in, when, in many ways, my book is a critical reflection on that context, or at least on the role that Buddhism played in, in that context. You know what? You said something very interesting earlier. You said you can't really exist outside a tradition, which makes absolute sense. The very language we speak is part of a tradition. So I, I couldn't agree more with that. But, you know, in the same way, there's really no way to step out of modernism. Or do you think otherwise? I think that in many, in many ways that that's right. Um, I think knowing that we're in it is what you're arguing for. Yeah. it's no, Well, knowing that we're in it and being able to reflect critically on it. Um, I think is 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 what I'm what I'm concerned with in the book, and no, it, it's not possible to, to to just simply step outside of that. I think you know fundamentally the agenda of our time is to figure out ways to uh, transform it in the face of a number of crises, and that if we aren't able to do that, you know our situation is dire. Uh, but it's not as if we can do that by simply stepping outside of it. Right. I notice in discussions with people who argue that Buddhism is not a religion, they're saying it's simply a description of how things are. And that's such a trap. It's not seeing the water you swim in, basically. Mm -hmm. So what about your own practice? What sort of spiritual practices do you engage in? Hmm. Aside from philosophy, which is also... Aside from philosophy. <laughs> that's, a big, right, that's a big one, but you talked about right. it. So. Yeah, I do think of philosophy uh, in its deep, deep inspiration as being a kind of practice. Um, I have engaged in and pursued and practiced different forms of meditation over the years, uh, many of them coming out of Buddhist uh, traditions, mo modern, you know, North American Buddhist traditions um, or, or communities, um, others rooted in Hinduism and yoga, uh, also for many years have studied certain kinds of, let's call them modern Chinese Taoist practices standing meditation and and tai chi chuan and qigong and things like that and my own my own practice has kind of evolved out of being exposed to all of those all of those different things so i have a you know i have a, a daily sitting practice in the morning and also a standing meditation practice in the morning first thing i do every day um, I think of it as, you know, fundamentally a matter of um, a good way to start the day, a, a way to be centered, um, a way to bring myself back to the intimacy of the of the mind and its experiential life. Uh, so that's, I suppose, a kind of summary description of the the type of of practices that I do. That's a good summary. It's been very generous of you to spend your time with us. I'm wondering if there's anything else about the book that you'd like to say to our listeners. Well, my hope with the book is that it will start a conversation. Um, it's a critical book, but I don't I don't think of it as as a polemical book. I think of it as you know a discussion between friends where a good friend says, "Look, you know, I really don't think you should look at it that way. Here's here's how I think you should look at it." So. My hope is that it can start a, a critical reflection and a, a richer discussion that really brings especially the value of Buddhist philosophy into the contemporary discussion about Buddhism and science. I'm sure our readers will enjoy the book. Thanks for joining us, Evan. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Evan Thompson, author of Why I'm Not a Buddhist, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts. 
Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Thank you for listening.